let's get the president out of American foreign and defense policy, and, and then it might run right. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm David Rothkopf, CEO and editor, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and I'm pleased to welcome back Susan Hennessy, who is a fellow in national security in governance studies at Brookings. She's also managing editor of the Lawfare blog. And also joining us in Washington is a former FP columnist, Julia Yaffe, who is also a staff writer for the much fancier Atlantic. Calling in from Palo Alto is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution, where she focuses on military history. ER nerds, don't fall off the treadmill. Don't drop your box of wine. We have some exciting news. The ER is now moving to two episodes a week. There's no shortage of things to talk about nowadays, and we want to continue to provide you with timely analysis on foreign policy issues that you care about as often as we possibly can, and that's why we are moving to twice a week. If you have ideas, email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com, and there may also be some new mug taglines making their debut soon. If you have a good suggestion for a mug tagline, send it in to us, because we'd really like to keep them uh, as amusing as they have always been. They're made in China, David. Exactly. So is our future being made in China. Get them before the 40% tariff kicks in. Yes, exactly. Recently, in our tiny podcast studio, high above Washington's DuPont Circle, we had the following conversation. So I was thinking, you know, we're moving to two a week, and I was thinking maybe we should have some differentiation. We could have a podcast called, No, Everything's Going to Be Just Fine. You know, that we could focus on what it is that makes us believe that we are not going to hell in a handbasket, that Donald Trump is not Satan incarnate, that the government is not going off the rails. And, you know, I'm going to give that a sh- I'm going to give it a shot. Let's just experiment with that. Um, Didn't we experiment with that at the New Year's broadcast and we all ran out of stuff in like – Forty-five seconds. Well, I'm going to give I'm going to give you a thesis here, and then then you okay. can you can see if you accept the thesis or not. Okay, here's what worries me about Donald Trump: all the domestic stuff, because I don't think the checks and balance really are going to work domestically, and I think you're going to see voting rights and civil rights and ethics laws and Obamacare and Dodd Frank and all these things. I think they're going to go away. I think we're going to. Four years from now, be in a much different place than we were two weeks ago. Um, so that that worries me. This is all incremental. This is as good as I can make it. However, on the foreign policy front, I actually have some hope. And here's why I have some hope: because the checks and balances aren't all in the United States, which is screwed up. There are other countries. There's multilateral institutions. There are other people who can either slow Trump's roll or offset him or push back on him. You know, the EU may be a mess, but Germany is still there and Angela Merkel is going to take her own course. China may be targeted by the US, but the Chinese are nothing if not rational actors. They don't want to see the system blown up. Even Putin tends to go just about as far as he can get away with, but he tends not to go beyond that. So do you feel better, Susan? 
I feel better only because you beautiful optimist you. I'm happy Thank that you. there are people like you who Thank believe you. in that. Um, but no, I'm oh, not. I cannot sure. adopt the thesis. So first of all, I agree, right? I think at some point uh, the Trump administration is going to have to recognize that there are other relevant actors here um, who are capable of asserting their own equities. That said, some of sort of the bulwarks of advancing American interests uh, are also under threat. So you mentioned sort of Britain and and Brexit and sort of that slow unfolding disaster. You know, at the same time, uh, the French elections, uh, you know, the election of Marine Le Pen potentially could be sort of the end of the European project. Um, So it feels like some of the really negative things that we're seeing domestically, right, that that sort of populist uh, uh, economic sensibility, national security sensibility, that is also taking hold uh, among our allies. Um, You know, the other thing is that uh, we don't appear to be a part of those allied relationships at all anymore. Um, There were reports all week about sort of these unbelievable conversations that Donald Trump had with other foreign leaders, uh, including those of very, very close allies. We've relied on those allies in part to assert American interests, right? We've expected them to sort of uh, carry water for us in a a lot of different ways. Um, If we isolate ourselves from our allies, I don't know that uh, that the system continues to hold uh, in this beautiful checking and balancing kind of way. Julia? You know, you said something very crucial about Putin being able to do only what he can get away with. And right now he's able to get away with a lot more than he used to be able to get away with. And so just on Friday last week, we saw, you know, the Norwegian security services were allegedly hacked by the Russians. The Dutch government was uh, subject to attack as well. WikiLeaks is stepping into the breach in France and, you know, dumping gasoline on the fire on Francois Fillon and his uh, corruption scandal just appearing at just the right moment to make sure he drowns. What a coincidence. I, I, I bet it's just, you know, they just happen to get their computer booted up in time. Uh, and what you're also seeing is— It's like the coincidence of all the arrests in Moscow mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the deaths and so forth. That's a big coincidence, right? Yeah, I, I'm sure it's just, you know, it just People die of natural causes in the backseat of their yeah, cars look, all the time. Russian Who they men, tried to poison two years ago, but— yeah. Russian men aren't supposed to live past 60, so, you know, they're why just— would, Why would you even want to? <laughs> I know. So the other thing that I found concerning over the last week was that we saw from the Trump administration a lot of what we saw from the Trump campaign, which is everything all at once, especially when it was self-negating. So on one hand, we support everything Israel does and we're Israel's best friend and we're going to do everything Israel wants, but we also want them to stop building settlements. And on one hand, we want to lift sanctions against Russia. We want to have a great relationship with Russia. But then on the other hand, we send out our new ambassador to the U.N., Nikki Haley, to talk about Russian aggression and Russian uh, the Russian invasion of the U.N. of excuse me. That's coming. Freudian slip. Freudian slip. That's coming. For, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and that we're not lifting sanctions until Russia leaves, leaves Crimea. Crimea. And and. You know, these things kind of negate it. And I was just talking to people in Moscow. They they have no idea what to make of it. And I think at some point people will just start pushing the envelope and trying to take advantage of these contradictions and to see which part of it really is true. Because if you have two contradictory stances, your stance is essentially zero. Corey, these guys are not playing along here. 
They're, they're not <laughs> buying into the fact that the rest of the world, you know, the U.S. can't just do whatever it wants. I mean, we decided we were going to remake the Middle East. We couldn't remake the Middle East because there were other people in the Middle East who had a different idea about it. So Trump can be the world's biggest asshole. And he may, in fact, qualify for that this year in the, you know, Mr. Asshole pageant for the planet. But the 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 the, the reality is other people it's have, have great other ratings, goals. Though. It would great have ratings, great ratings, the, the best, best ratings, much better than Arnold Schwarzenegger's ratings. But Corey, doesn't that give you some hope? I mean, there's seven and a half, half billion people on the planet. You know, Donald Trump's just one man. I do have some hope, but that's not the basis for it, David. I share Susan and Julia's concern that the international order is not self-organizing and that the United States uh, has played a unique and important role over the last 70 years in establishing rules that are mutually beneficial, which which keeps the cost of sustaining the order very low for the United States and other proponents of it, has fostered norms and practices and senses of law that that we voluntarily commit to in a way that that because the strongest power in the order voluntarily limits its own power, others feel safer in the order. And I don't think any of those dynamics can be replicated simply by having regional powers or international institutions absent the United States involved in it. I just offer as Exhibit A what appears to be the collapse of the International Criminal Court with uh, African states withdrawing from it. So no, I don't think the order is self-reinforcing. I do, however, have an optimistic note to sound. And well, it's it about seems... time. <laughs> I know. It seems to me that if the White House communications folks can turn off the recording of the president's phone calls when he is talking to Vladimir Putin, uh, which I did not Was actually that confirmed? Believe, uh, that's a good question. The statement came from the White House that they yeah. said there was no, uh, that's why there was no uh, readout. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so thank you. Was, thank you, good journalists, for keeping me honest. I appreciate that. Yeah, well, um, Ro- the White House taping operator, Rosemary Woods, Most most of our listeners have no idea who that is. But But you know what's awesome about our listeners? They are Googling it fast-fingeredly right now. Right now to find find out the 18-minute gap. But go on. So that the Bard College dinner parties don't bog down. Yeah, Um, no, well, you would hate to have that happen. (laughs) So here's my source of optimism, though. If White House communications folks can turn off the recording of the president's telephone calls, surely they can reroute those calls to a dedicated staffer who will pretend to be Malcolm Turnbull or Shinzo Abe or another leader that we don't want to affront, alienate, and ruin our relationship with. And in the meantime, the Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense can go out in the world and do what Secretary Mattis is doing all over Asia today, which is reassuring our allies of our rock-ribbed commitment to our mutual defense pacts and our interest in regional cooperation and international institutions. 
And I believe the president's attention span is short enough he may not ever even notice. So so my source of optimism nice. is let's get the president out of American foreign and defense policy and and then it might run right. Great idea. It's kind of like the Ed show. And then Steve Bannon will take his place and things will be great. Well, this brings me to the next point. Okay, because some people get some optimism out of the idea that there's some grown-ups in the government. And one of the most common retorts that like I'll talk to some friend and I'll say, you know, this things are going really badly, and they'll go, "But Mattis." You know, in fact, the main thing I hear all the time is, "But Mattis." Now, of course, Mattis has been there the whole time and that doesn't seem to be having an effect, but they keep saying, "But Mattis." And I was talking to somebody who's a very senior international official who knows the US government extremely well, and he said, this is how you have to view this government. He said, on sort of the the outside game, view it a little bit as championship wrestling. And and Trump is there at the microphone saying, let's get ready to rumble. And it's all very dramatic. But the inside game is more like The Apprentice. And there's two teams on The Apprentice. There's the rational team of Mattis and Kelly, Pompeo, and Tillerson. And then there's the irrational team of Bannon and Kushner and Flynn and you know a few of those other characters. And each week, they'll each present their view and that Trump will pick which team it is. And that you know the hope is that every once in a while, he'll pick the rational team. And, and in, in the past two weeks, the reality is that a couple of times, Trump has done something actually rational. So they take some hope from this. Like what? Like, what did he do? Supreme that Court was nomination. Gorsuch was okay. a fairly rational. Nikki Haley saying that the Russians, you know, we'd keep sanctions until they gave back Crimea was fairly rational. Deciding not to move the embassy to Jerusalem was fairly rational. You know, there were a couple, the little little glimmers of hope. Do you feel better now that thinking about those 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 sane people? So, look, I, I do take comfort from the idea that there are sane people, and um, and I I really thank them for for agreeing to sort of serve under these conditions. I think, in, in some sense, the last two weeks has been a demonstration of the limits uh, of their ability to influence things. <laughs> Mattis has, has served his country honorably and with distinction, and um, you know, I, I don't think you could find anyone who would say that he wasn't he was any but an incredibly decent person who who wanted to get to the right decision. You know, he stood beside Trump as Trump in, in the Hall of Honor as the as Trump signed this immigration order that the Mattis himself had said he thought would imperil U.S. troops. Just as he once stood beside Corey Shockey. <laughs> Right. But I think that there's something sort of there's some, something symbolic in that moment of sort of just the difficulty of this position of, you know, really they're, they're fighting a war with one bullet, which is the ability to resign. Anything short of that, you know, you're 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 lending your personal credibility, um, you know, sort of being being brought out as see, look, my generals, all of my generals uh, uh, back me. That's a that's a difficult uh position to be in and one that uh, I think people are going to, uh, it's going to get harder and harder. Another thing is sort of Trump's ability to really sabotage those people, right? So um, Rex Tillerson started at uh, the State Department this week following his confirmation. The day before he came in, uh, you know, this dissent memo that was signed by a thousand State Department employees, which is unprecedented and remarkable number. Uh, You know, Sean Spicer goes on TV and says, you know, love it or leave it. If you guys don't like the government, you should quit. That puts Tillerson in such a difficult position, coming in to an agency that he is supposed to lead 
in already sort of in this adversarial posture in which he has to either decide to undercut his boss or get with the program. Uh, that's an incredibly difficult space to navigate in. I'm grateful it is those people as opposed to some other non-sane, non-principled people. But I don't know how effective that can really be over the long term, considering what they're up against. Yeah. How long are these people going to last in these positions? Especially remember the the position uh, Kelly was put in when, you know, reports were coming out that DHS was completely blindsided by the immigration order. And Sean Spicer said, no, they weren't. And DHS said, yes, we were. And then very quickly said, no, we weren't. You know, at one point, they're going to have to look at look at themselves in the mirror and decide if they can keep doing this. For example, Sean Spicer's very first appearance in the White House press room when he came out and lied to the press. And a very smart friend of mine said, once you make somebody publicly lie for you, you own them. And what do you do after you've done that for your boss? So as Susan said, he's put a lot of these people in very difficult, no-win situations. Corey? I do think the sensible people in the cabinet are very much at risk of the the dynamic that both Susan and Julia talked about. I can't yet tell myself whether what we are seeing is a new administration where you always have, like even in a transition done well, as David Rothkopf knows better than anyone because he wrote two terrific books on the NSC process and deals with transition issues, um, that you know, new administrations make lots of right-hand, left-hand coordination mistakes, and maybe they're just settling in, and uh, that's the optimistic case. The pessimistic case is that, of course, the problem in this whole constellation is the president himself. And the most reckless people, the least principled people, are the people closest to the president, both in political participation, that is, they were campaign people, they stood by him through lots of the craziness, and they're in the White House. And so the possibility of the cabinet being marginalized or the entire process bogging down because you have NSC meetings in which uh, cabinet members believe things have been decided and then either the NSC relitigates it after the fact or the president careers off in another direction unanticipated by people who thought they had a decision corralled. I personally think you shouldn't expect uh, the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Defense to be our salvation from an administration where the major problem is the president himself. So don't expect these guys to win every fight. Nobody would be able to do that when the problem is the president himself. But, but yeah, I'm sure sleeping better at night that they are in there trying to do so. And I think we would be a lot worse off if they weren't. I'm going to I'm going to restrain myself from you know interjecting here because I'm supposed to be the champion of optimism in this conversation. Uh, although the reality is that there is a kind of a secular trend towards the White House having disproportionately more power than the agencies, simply because of the speed with which decisions have got to be made, which sort of mitigates against 
having effective, slow-moving processes, even in administrations that want to have them. This administration hasn't showed any predisposition in that regard. Julia, did you want to say something? I just, you know, the first two weeks of Trump's presidency, I just kept finding myself thinking about all the people who all throughout the campaign said, come on, it's going to be okay. Don't take him, literally take him seriously. And, you know, once he's once the primaries really get going, he'll calm down. And okay, fine. Um, once the field narrows, he'll calm down and become more serious. And I'm finding this very hurtful. Okay, and this when feels he, very personal. It's not, it's not you. It's me. Someone who shall remain nameless. No, it wasn't you. It wasn't you. It was. It was so many. It other actually people. was him. You just didn't listen to those podcasts. It was. Uh, you know, and once he gets the nomination, he'll become more serious. And once he wins, he'll he'll become more, more presidential. And surely once he's inaugurated, he'll become more presidential. And I feel like, I mean, I'm sorry in advance for this horrible analogy, but it's it's akin to a woman going on a first date with a guy who said, you know, I beat my last three girlfriends and I'll probably beat you. And the woman goes home and tells her friends and her mom that, you know, he said this, but he's probably joking. He'll probably be a good boyfriend. And then after the first beating, he says, well, you know, it is February, so he'll probably stop beating me in March. It's just I, I, I don't know how you can take somebody seriously without taking what they say literally. And he has, you know, true to his word, he's done everything that he said he was going to do. And even when his own people go out there and try to stay on message and say it's not a Muslim ban, he goes out and tweets that it's a ban against bad dudes, in quotation marks. You know, he he's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. And so to suddenly think, well, you know, at some point he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. He's not going to do the, all the horrible, corrupt, unconstitutional things he said he was going to do in the campaign. It just strikes me as insane. So, I mean, one thing that's sort of interesting, I agree, right? He's he's doing exactly what he campaigned on, right? He's fulfilling these campaign promises. So uh, the sort of the shock or, or the surprise here, it's, I think, a little bit crazy. You know, one thing that's interesting is they've also disregarded all process, right? We have these draftios coming out that, you know, the secretaries are, are being surprised by. Well, they've had one deputies committee meeting. There you go. I've also heard, by the way, that the some of the executive orders are being drafted by recent college, like 22-year-olds who just graduated from college. (laughs) I had a senior State Department person tell me that uh, she found out that the TPP executive order was written by a guy who graduated some college in New Jersey in May or June 2016, (laughs) was an intern on the Christie campaign. Wait, wait, Wait a second. What does New Jersey have to do with this? <laughs> I don't know. This is where because he was okay. a Christie person. Not, he was a Christie person. Let's, but it's a twenty-two. It's like Jersey. when your grandma mentioned someone's race. And no, 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 no. I'm not dissing New Jersey. I'm just saying he okay. was he was a Christie person. He was a Christie intern, and he drafted the TPP executive order. He's twenty-two. Yeah, and and KT, KT McFarland, the deputy national security advisor, began the one and only deputies meeting so far by saying. I'm from television, so two minutes tops, everybody. Oh, God. Is that right? Yeah. So, so look, there's there's some features that are just sort of amateurism. Um, uh, there's some features that I think are actually an intentional disregard of process, right? A, a desire to actually create chaos and, and circumvent any sort of legal review. 
One thing that might end up being interesting and, and a place that there might be some unexpected salvation is the courts. So the fact that this immigration order um, uh, was so incompetent, was rolled out with in such a ridiculously disorganized, chaotic manner, that actually uh, uh, provided standing that wouldn't have existed otherwise for those emergency orders we saw. Under the Equal Protection Doctrine, it's usually really, really difficult to prove discriminatory intent on the part of the government, right? No no one would be so stupid as to say, well, we use these words, but really we, we intended it for this discriminatory prohibited purpose. Donald yeah, Trump I has doubt that's done... a very strong legal case, right? Ignore my words to the contrary. I, yeah, you yeah, you have all, all the people like Giuliani who said he helped draft that executive order come out and say, yeah, of course it was a Muslim ban. Of course and, it and was Trump, a Muslim ban. And Trump himself saying it. So. But they appear to think that like they're saying, they're saying, oh, no, he wanted a Muslim ban, but he asked us to figure out a legal way to do it as if that's like that's the defense as opposed to, no, that's literally what you have to prove in court <laughs> to, to strike something down. So we'll see if the courts step in here and to, to constrain the president in a way they've never done so before. So that's a good that's a good one. OK, we finally found some optimism here that these guys suck at their jobs so much that they're creating the opportunity to defeat them in the courts. So that's as far as I until he until he wait, wait, I have optimism. optimism. Okay, but let me I'm going to get to your optimism. But I want to say one point about the courts, which we've talked about before on the ER. And that is, on the other hand, the pessimists I know worry that Trump's attitude towards the law is the law is only what is enforceable. And so to the extent to which there are rulings and things they don't like to that, they may just saying, well, this is courts trying to legislate, they're overreaching, and we're just going to do it anyway. For example, the Border Patrol, people who refused to uh, abide by the court orders and refused at Dulles to let in lawyers to see people who were detained, who refused to well, even so recognize there's two the way, It's order. a two-way street. So, okay. Now, Corey, you're getting optimistic. You're getting with the, with the whole spirit The hot of tub's this. getting bubbly. The, yeah, the hot tub <laughs> is getting... <laughs> right. She's getting a little woozy there in the hot tub. But, yeah... Um, okay, here's my optimism. Yeah. The, it is twofold. First, I could see the White House being willing to be held in contempt of court, right? The Andrew Jackson let John Marshall enforce this. Do you see? We but always I get have... back to the first half of the 19th century with Perry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but I got you a feeling like we're going to— No, no. I got a feeling we're going to be talking about Andrew Jackson a lot. And the yeah. person who writes in with the great quote from whoever it was, you know, Henry Clay or Daniel Webster, one of those characters that talked about they're the all getting more recognition now. The it's character great. of Jackson <laughs> and why it was terrible to elect somebody with such a lousy character to be president uh, will definitely get a mug because. Oh, in fact, please, please, ER nerd listeners, please warm my heart with Davy Crockett quotations about how awful Andrew Jackson is because he's the very best source on this subject. Davy Crockett. Hasn't yes. come up before. Okay, keep going on, on, <laughs> okay. on this. But two, two things. First, the White House may be willing to be in contempt of court, but, but individuals and government agencies, I don't believe, can withstand that pressure. And with the cabinet that he's appointed, I would be surprised if they even attempt to withstand that pressure. So, so... So the agencies will have a role here, and I think that's important. The second thing, though, is 
American civil society has been just fantastic since the executive order on immigration and refugees came down. It was super heartening to see Sergey Brin, the founder of Google at the San Francisco airport, you know, giving interviews, reminding people that he's a refugee. And to see American businesses, and not just, you know, the lefty tech folks out here in Silicon Valley, but Coca-Cola, Ford Motors, right? This is bad for American brands. And they have influence with an administration whose claim to stature is that they're good for business. I do want to say one thing here before Susan begins, and that is, I actually believe that we're all on to something here, which is really significant, which is independent judiciary is one of the checks that is likely to work, certainly better than the Congress, which is going to just roll over and play dead. And that following these legal issues really closely is more important than ever. And Susan is the managing editor of the Lawfare website, which does a lot of that. And if you don't Please contribute know, to it, if ER you don't listeners. know Lawfare, and if you don't go to it, if you don't contribute to it, you should. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, here, here. You should. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we're very tired this week. Tired? <clears throat> yeah, like because it's just the onslaught of because people are paying attention. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, because be, well, no, and because he's giving you stuff to write about. Well, because like it you is can't. It's a full employment like program. <laughs> exactly. Yes. For lawyers, just for, what we for needed. National Security. Lawfare and Alec Baldwin. <laughs> yeah, lawfare. Actually, I didn't know what lawfare meant <laughs> until now. Law. No, but now Come you're on. getting the now I get it. It's, it's lawfare is welfare for lawyers. Well played, David. So, so two points. Uh, you know, first, one thing that I think is being lost in this conversation. You know, Donald Trump tweeted out about this deal um, to take Australian refugees, um, about how it was a terrible deal. Um, and he referred to uh, illegal, right? We're supposed to take these illegal immigrants. Um, refugees are not illegal. Refugees have legal status to enter the country. And so whenever you look at what Donald Trump is talking about and what Steve Bannon is talking about and taking their words literally and seriously, and I think we should because he's the president. Uh, I don't know Bannon or Trump, but one of them is the president. Uh, their position is not even about a Muslim ban. It is worse than that. It is they oppose non-white immigration. The president of the United States' wife is an immigrant. His mother is an immigrant. He has no problem with particular types of immigration. Anything that falls outside of that, and it's not a legal distinction, it's something other than the legal distinction, he deems illegal and unacceptable. And so whenever we, whenever we look at these policies and really the, the malignant, malicious impacts of them, I think it needs to be with an understanding of that's what they're talking about. This is not about border security. This is not about illegal immigration. This is about something else. That's second- so he's in favor of immigrants that will sleep with him or give birth to him. So just like he's in favor of Jews that will be his lawyer, but all the other ones they get cut out of Holocaust or count, memos. Count his money, yeah, yeah as exa- he said. Yeah, as he said. The, you know, this this came up. Uh, what Susan said came up during the campaign when it was revealed that Melania Trump was probably here for some time working illegally on a tourist visa. So she was an illegal immigrant. And a BuzzFeed reporter that day went to a rally, or the next day went to a Trump rally, and on video asked these Trumpkins what they thought of these stories about Melania Trump's 
disputed immigration status. And they said, oh, we don't care about her status. We're pretty, we, we don't care about European immigrants. We're pretty down with Western civilization, i.e., Charming. White immigrants down with Western civilization. The other sort of feature that I think is is as important as the as the judiciary in terms of like adhering to to the rule of law and respecting court orders. Right? We talked about. I think the Customs and Border Patrol. It's not clear what happened. I think as much just confusion and chaos and, and not knowing. You know, people. Uh, I talk a lot about. Oh, are we going to go back to torture? Are we going to start torturing people? You know, this draft DO. Um, people forget that actually, um, you know, under the Bush administration, uh, before there were sort of revelations about black sites and. and others. DOD actually uh, refused to accept uh, a Department of Justice legal interpretation that said, oh, you can still engage in these practices, uh, even though the Detainee Treatment Act maybe maybe uh, changes the rules here, right? Uh, so DOJ, Congress passed this law. Uh, DOJ said, you know, no, you can still do this. And, and DOD st- flat out said, no, we will not do that. And so it's not going to be just up to Trump. It's not just going to be up to his political sort of appointees. It's going to be up to the people who actually have to carry well, this. Well, this, so, this, brings, this brings me to one other thing. Do, do you want to quickly I jump do, in? I do. I do quickly want to jump in uh, on what Susan said and what Corey said earlier about the importance of agencies. We saw that last week with the firing of Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates and Trump saying her job, her only job, in fact, is to do what I say. And so she's fired. Okay, and I, and I worry, I worry that's that... That's a more that's, complicated case. I understand, but I, but, but I worry that in his mind now, I mean, I don't think he saw the complexities of it. And I worry now that in his mind, he sees the... He sees the ability to fire anyone in any agency who isn't just a yes man. Well, this gets me to the... To, to, to the last of my optimistic straws that I've been clinging to here, okay? Uh, because we had but Mattis and we have but, you know, the world and we have but now the law, the courts. This one is but the bureaucracy. And Corey, you and, and Susan have both been faceless bureaucrats. Me too. And, 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 and we've been in, inside the system and we've watched how professionals inside this system are expert at making things they don't want to have happen not happen. They slow walk things. They yes people. They leak things. And, and we've already seen in this administration leaks that are so profuse that they're kind of a tidal wave of, of – And interestingly, from the White House itself – Right. And that's part of the that's part. Even the appointees within the bureaucracy are going to be fighting with each other and there is no discipline. And so you have the ability of the bureaucracy to slow things down and do nothing and the ability of the bureaucracy to blow stuff up with leaks. Corey, doesn't that give you hope? Yes, it does give me hope. I do think the agencies have a crucial role to play. I do think that the women and men who work for the federal government are for, you know, almost to a person dedicated to trying to do the right thing. I think they're not easily influenced to do the wrong thing. And the fact that, you know, as Susan was saying, that the Nuremberg defense doesn't get you any place in the United States, right? Like, if you carry out an illegal or unlawful order, you are accountable in the American military. It's widely accepted among lawyers in government, among civil servants in government. Like the bureaucracy is going to be a huge break and a, and a useful one on some of the worst things. That said, 
I noticed Dang. that the customs so and almost border was a patrol. Glimmer of hope. Yep, I I couldn't get it all. The customs and border control folks revoking uh, mm-hmm. visas and, and immigration back green card holders and. Right. Like it can't be our only line of defense. And that's where active civil society, that's where the ACLU, that's where volunteer lawyers just showing up at airports, that's veterans showing up at airports. Um, It really matters not to let other people be our sentinels, but for us all to be sentinels in this difficult time. So just because I cannot let a single shred of optimism stand, um, I'm not even, I actually was really hopeful about this. You must be a blast to be around 24 hours a day. It's like. You know, it's, hey, you know, there's real talk here. No, no, I know, but I like follow you on Twitter and it's like you're like angry 24 hours a day. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm mad. I'm fired up is what I am. Like, I also had a lot of hopes about, like, you know, the bureaucracy and they can slow this down and it can last longer than the administration and everything was going to be fine and this and that. That requires an adherence to process. And so it, the White House has shown itself it's untethered itself from any of sort of the ordinary processes. Those processes are the tools by which the bureaucracy can gum things up. So, yes, I think they can do that on the issue areas in which the White House either doesn't know or you really can't circumvent the process. But there are going to be other areas in which if Donald Trump is willing to sign an executive order without consulting with the bureaucracy, there's just nothing they can do to stop that. That's not true. The bureaucracy can work with Congress to rein those things in. And remember, we're only two weeks Who? into the Congress? administration. What's that? Congress. There's nobody there. And also, That's I have a question, there's, there's an honest a, I question. Mean, from- I, mean, I mean, Paul Ryan has proven himself to be the lowest form of, of sort of spineless life on the place, like a paramecium. I mean, this 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 guy has no character. He has, has his character surgically removed. And, you know, Mitch McConnell's character is in the same place his chin is, which is unlocatable. So I think there are <laughs> lots of areas like sanctions on Russia and areas of, of law where the Congress will take action um, to restrain the president. I agree with you. They are not portraits and courage for the most part. But again, I do think we're two weeks into the administration and I I am not without hope that Congress will find its footing, not least because folks like Lindsey Graham and John McCain actually care about a lot of these issues. Okay. We've only got a minute on this episode, and so I'm going to go to Julia because she has a thing to add. But Susan, I was recalling some of your tirades on Twitter. Did you use the term MOOCs? At one point, no. you, you were referring to them as oh you, mopes, mopes, yeah, yes, mopes, mopes. Yeah, mopes. I, I like that. I thought <laughs> yeah. that was I, I thought that was really good. And I think one of the things that we need, and ER listeners, if you've got suggestions, we could use some new adjectives. Yeah. We could use some here, new, here. Kind of old competition we, begins. We could use some new Unleash nouns. Unleash the nerdiness of the ER nation. I also like nincompoop. That's yeah, another thing right, I'm right, to, right. So, so, so some some you know um, nouns that are denigrated. <laughs> or adjectives or other things because we're really running out of terms to use. Yes, Julia. Yes, I just had a I had a question as somebody, as somebody who has never served as a faceless bureaucrat and that worries me when we talk about agencies and bureaucrats slow rolling things. To what extent can these agencies be packed, you know, purged and then packed by the 
administrative branch. There's one point X million people in the United States government, and there's 6,000 political appointees. So look, there there are too many people to fire and replace. That is true. Um, however, the idea that career billets are not supposed to be filled by po- by political appointees, that's a normative uh, a sort of protection. One of the, the big criticisms of, for example, the Bush administration uh, DOJ was that he put, he put political appointees or political types in career positions. That was a cause of a lot of consternation. Then not to mention the Obama Foreign Service, where he put historically high numbers of political appointees in as ambassadors. So so he, you know, it's it, mm-hmm. both sides of Oh, sure, this. sure, sure. I'm just wondering about, you know, the, the potential. There. Well, it's just there's too many jobs. They, they, they don't know. They don't know enough people to fill the jobs that they currently have to fill. But so. don't they want? But, but civil I think servants they don't want to also f- drag out for a long period of time the the labor dispute process of firing. DOD has a huge number of civil servants and has been trying to reduce them simply to increase its tooth to tail ratio in the force. And it takes a long time to get rid of civil servants, and the Congress has tended to protect them. So, so it it doesn't happen fast, Julia. Okay, okay. We're running out of time here. I did my that best. That was optimism. Folks. People who are listening know that I tried, but the world, but Mattis, but the bureaucracy, but the legal system. There are little shreds of hope in there. There are little shreds of checks and balances in there, and you know. Hopefully, they will kick in. But I think the point that Corey made a little bit ago about active civil society is one that we want to end with. And that is, you know, I I never thought that I would see a period again where Americans would show up, for example, as they did in airports, to protest on a foreign policy issue and a fairly arcane one in numbers like we saw or – the Women's March. And I think that something has happened in America where people have been activated and where that can play a big role in reining this in or at least motivating other public officials at the state level or at the local level uh, or at the national level to offer more robust checks against change. And, And so that's something that any ER listener can do. You can actually go out, get involved someplace, make a difference. And we would encourage you to do that because this is certainly a time we need it. Another thing we need is more episodes of the ER. And as I said at the beginning, we are now moving to two episodes a week of the ER. And uh, so we encourage you to come back in a couple of days and enjoy the next episode. In the meantime, thank you, Susan. Thank you, Julia. Thank you, Corey. You have been listening to Foreign Policies, the ER podcast. I'm David Rothkoff, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Maria Ori and Ann Kingston. For more information about FP and to subscribe to this and our Global Thinkers podcast, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.